a little more than a year after the Bnei Yisrael left Mitzrayim, Hashem tells Moshe Beno it's time to enter Eretz Yisrael. They had received the Torah already, they already built the Mishkan, and now it was time for the Jewish people to enter the land of Israel. And the first Hashem says, send Muraglim, send each tribe, should have one person representing that tribe, and send people to spy out the land, see the nature of the land. And in fact, and that's what happens. Moshe Benu chooses Anoshim, men. And Rashi points out, Anoshim is the highest form of praise. These were the elite of the Klaisol, the leaders of the Jewish nation. Each Shevet had one representative. Of each Shevet, this was one of the greatest men. And all of them were Anoshim. At that point, all of them were Kesherim. All of them were Tzadikim. And while that's how the process began, that's not quite what happened. And Moshe Benu told them specifically what to look for, spy out the land, see the strength of the land, see the fortifications, figure out the best way to enter the land. And in fact, that's what happened. They went in. But when the Miraglim and 12 of them went into the land, what they saw was awe-inspiring. And they saw Achiman, Sheshai, Vitalmai, Yeladeha, Anak. They saw giants, tremendously powerful, huge figures of men who so loomed over them that they looked at themselves like they were grasshoppers compared to these giants. And as the Pusik says, and these giants looked at them as they were grasshoppers. Rashi explains how they know. And because these giants of men said, look, in the field over there, what are those ants? What are those little insects over there? And the Miraglim are overwhelmed by the fortifications and by the cities. And just to give you an illustration of the giants, and the size of things. And the Pasuk tells us that they brought, by they took a cluster of grapes, Rashi explains, two poles, four men on each side to carry one cluster of grapes. It took eight men to carry this cluster of grapes, and one other of the Miraglim took a Rimon, another one took a Tena, and they brought back these fruits to show the Klaishol, and just as these fruits are oversized, so too the men are. And the Miraculum very quickly lost hope. They come back to the Jewish nation. And after 40 days of being Miragil, 40 days of going from one part of Eretzal to the other, and they come back with the report. The entire Jewish nation is gathered, and they come back and they say, We went to the land that you sent us. It flows, in fact, as you said, it flows with milk and honey. Ephes, however, ki the people who occupy that land are powerful. And the cities are powerfully fortified. We saw giants, literally huge, huge men there. And then the Raglam showed, look at these fruits. Look at these huge grapes. Just as the fruit are oversized, so to the people are. And saying to the Israel, there is no way we can win. There is no way we can take over the land. Amongst the twelve was Kalev and Yeshua, who had a Das Acher, had a very different Ruach amongst them. And Kalev says, quiet, I want to speak. Kalev speaks and he says, Alo Nola, we can go up. Yochol Nuchol, but we can, we can conquer him. Hashem will protect us. At which point, Anoshim Hashem, the other ten said, no, we cannot. Lo Nuchol we cannot win this nation. Ki Chazak Humimenu. And this nation, these people are more powerful than him. And they went on to say the rest of the story, and it will be destroyed, 
will be killed. And in fact, the Jewish nation accepted this diba. One man said to his other, Let us put a new head. Let's get rid of Moshe Rabbeinu. Let us put a new head on top of us. And let us head to back to Mitzrayim. And at that moment, the Jewish nation were in a state of rebellion against Hashem, against Moshe and Aaron. And in that moment, they sealed their fate. The end of that story is very, very ugly. The entire generation died in the Midbar. Those ten people of the twelve, Meraglim, died at Misa Meshuna, a horrible death. And in fact, they sealed their fate as being Rishayim, as being wicked men. When they left, they were not wicked. When they left, they were Ksherim. But something happened, and they lost faith. And at a certain point, they became Rishayim. And there's one Rashi who comments that opens the entire vista of understanding to what was going on. You see, when the men came back, and Kalev says, quiet, we can win, Hashem can protect us, and the ten of the Meraglim said back, no, lo nucha we cannot win against this nation, ki mimenu, this nation is more powerful than him. Who is him? What do you mean this nation is more powerful than him? And explains Rashi, what they were saying was, and this nation is more powerful than God. We cannot win. You tell us God is on our side, that's wonderful. That would be fine if we were regular people. These were giants. And they were phenomenally powerful in fortified cities. They are more powerful than God. God cannot save us here. And that's what turned them. And because of that, they turned the Jewish nations, Bitochen and Hashem, they turned them against Hashem. And they died in Misa Meshuna, and the entire generation died in the Midbar. And I believe this Rashi requires some very, very careful understanding. Let's imagine I'm having a problem in Amuna. There could be various reasons why I might have a problem in Amuna. Number one, Hashem isn't here. Either I don't believe in Hashem altogether, or Hashem isn't present. Meaning, very nice, Hashem may exist, may not exist, but He's not here. So that could certainly be a suffix in Amuna. That could lead to a problem, and certainly I'm not going to be able to trust Hashem if He's not here. That makes sense. Another reason why a person could have a suffix in Amuna question is, who says God's going to save me? Who says I'm worthy? Who says that Hashem, I know Hashem is here, and I know Hashem is power, powerful and mighty, but who says that Hashem is going to intervene in my life? Okay, that also makes sense. But that's not what these people were saying. And these people stood there on Har Sinai, and they heard Hashem say, Anochi Hashem Elokecha, and these people understood. They lived through ten months of Makas. They saw Dam Sradeyakinim, and they lived through Kriyas Yamsuf. They lived in the Midbar with daily their bread being brought to them, Mun, the bear, this huge rock following them, spewing forth millions of gallons of water. They knew that Hashem was present, and they had no question that Hashem would do a miracle for the Jewish nation. Look what Hashem is doing for them every moment of the day. Look what Hashem did for them. But what was their issue? Their issue was Hashem cannot do this. These giants are more... Hashem is good at some things. And we're talking about giants of fortified cities. That is beyond Hashem. That sounds rather difficult to understand. Because if Hashem is capable of splitting the sea, probably Hashem could take care of a couple of giants. And Hashem can turn all the water in Mitzrayim into blood, probably he can take care of the fortified cities. What do you mean more powerful than Hashem? How could they say something so ridiculous? How could they say something so foolish? 
And if you don't appreciate this question yet, let me make it a little bit more pointed. The Ramban explains that there's a listing of the people who led this party. There were 12 Maraglim, 12 spies. Amongst them was Kalev ben Yifuna and Yeshua ben Nun. Yeshua ben Nun becomes, after Moshe ben Nun, the leader of the Jewish nation. Kalev ben Yifuna is a tzaddik of unimaginable proportions. The Ramban explains that the listing of these men was in rank order. Not by Shevet, but by rank order how great they were. And if you watch the Psukim, you see that Kalev is number three and Yeshua is number five. Meaning these people were greater than Kalev, greater than Yeshua. Kalev was number three, Yeshua was number five. Meaning there were quite a number of these people with tzaddikim of incredible proportions, greater than Yeshua bin Nun. So here's the question. How could they say something so ridiculous? How could they say, Chazakumi men are more powerful than God? And this Rashi is rather, rather difficult to understand. And to answer this question, what we need to do is, we need to study that very, very complex, the most complex entity under the sun, and that is the human personality. And to do that, let me share with you an interesting observation. Here's a question. Are you a mammon? Are you a mammon? Are you a trustworthy Jew, anyone who believes in Hashem, one who accepts the basic tenets of our religion? Okay, so let me assume you say yes. Of course. I accept the fact that Hashem created, maintains, and orchestrates everything under the sun. I accept the fact that Hashem fills every planet of physicality. I accept the fact that means that Hashem is here right now. I also accept the fact that Hashem watches every action, records it, and at the end of my days I'm going to be richly rewarded for what I did right and have to answer what I did wrong. I got it. Okay, so assuming that I'm a mammon, here's the question. In your life, have you ever sinned? Have you ever spoken Lashon Har? A good question. Uh, how about, in your life, were you ever scared? Were you ever terrified? Have you ever get some bad news? <clears throat> you're in a rough situation and you're scared? Hmm. Have you ever fainted during dominating? Have you ever been there dominating Shemonesser and suddenly passed out? Okay, let me share with you why I ask these questions. If I accept the fact that Hashem is present right here, how is it possible that I don't faint during Shemun Esrei? If I accept the fact that every action that I am engaged in is permanently etched into the essence of me, how is it possible that I ever sin? If I get it that Hashem runs the whole world, then how is it that I'm afraid? How is it that I have sudden nervousness, tension, dread? Am I a mammon or am I not a mammon? Do I believe or do I not believe? And let's delve into this question because it begs understanding and begs understanding the basics of we, the human race. And to understand that, let's begin with one concept the Chobos Vobos makes very clear, and that is you and I are comprised of vastly different components, a Nefesh Sikhli and Nefesh Bahami. And many Shmuzim, we've discussed this concept. There's a full half of me that only wants to do what's right, what's good, what's proper. That's a Chelekil Kimimal, pure Neshama, all that part of me wants to do is cling to Hashem, do chesed, do everything good. That's part of my neshama. Hashem took me and put me into a body, and this body has a nefesh bahami. A nefesh bahami has all of the instincts, all of the desires, and all of the proclivities that you'll find in the wild kingdom, Hashem put into man. And the tiger naturally knows what to eat, how to eat. It has a drive, it has a natural pull. 
into each creation, Hashem put all of the instincts, desires, and nature to keep itself alive, as well as to bring the next generation into existence. And into man, Hashem implanted the same thing. <clears throat> Half of me is pure, neshama chelikimimal, pure, brilliant soul. Half of me is a nefesh bahami, pure instincts, drives, and lusts. But here's the difficult part. One part has huge advantages over the other. You see, from the time you opened your eyes as an infant, your nefesh bahami was instinctually asking, begging, needing. From the moment you came to any sense, the full half of you was demanding, constantly having its needs met. You didn't begin thinking intelligently, you didn't begin functioning on a higher level until you got older, and probably not until you were bar mitzvah, did you really, bat mitzvah, did you really start functioning that way? <clears throat> so the Nebuchadnezzar Bahami has a huge, huge head start. Additionally, whatever you do all day, your Nebuchadnezzar Bahami is active in. You eat, you sleep, you get tired, you get cranky. If I'm outside and I say, I'm cold, I am experiencing, my physical body is experiencing something all day long, your Nebuchadnezzar Bahami is functioning. These two parts, the Seichel, Nebuchadnezzar Bahami, are fighting a war for primacy in the human being. Whichever one you use more becomes stronger, whichever one you use less becomes weaker, but it's a constant battle. And you should quickly realize that the Nebuchadnezzar Bahami has a huge head start, is in its natural state, and within a very short amount of time, it should totally take over the human and the human should be an animal within human form, but no different than any other animal in the wild kingdom, controlled by drives, appetites, and pulls. Hashem gave us various mitzvahs. Hashem gives us various warnings not to do, to, to do, to strengthen the seichel. But at the end of the day, if you'd like to understand the you and the I, we're pulled by two very different components, two very different parts. And here's where things get very interesting. If a person is 50-50, imagining that the seichel is a white circle, and an Evishabahami is a brown circle, I am in the middle. I view the world through this filter of 50% muddy brown. You see, the Evishabahami is just drives and appetites, knows nothing other than fulfilling its instincts. <clears throat> doesn't know about the future, <clears throat> doesn't care about whether Hashem is happy or not, doesn't know Hashem exists. All it is is instincts, drives, and desires. At a 50-50 level, imagine those are two circles and they overlap. I'm in the middle. I see through a filter of 50% mud. And guess what? It's very hard to see things. But it's not just that I see through that filter. I experience. I think. I exist there. My feelings are processed within that. And that is me. I'm half and half. If a person reaches a very high madrega, it begins shifting. And the behemoth side, Nebuchadnezzar Bahami becomes weaker, and instead of being 50%, it might become 40%, 30%, 20%. If it gets to the point where he's 80% and 20% so he, which is in the middle, is covered by a very thin filter. That filter is only 20% brown. He could see clearly. He clearly experiences Hashem right here in front of him. He knows factually he's going to die and answer to Hashem for whatever he did. He understands the value of every mitzvah, the damage of every avera. A person with that vision is a tzaddik. He worked very hard to get there, 
to change the filters, but he's a tzaddik, but he's a tzaddik who realizes and understands the incredible accomplishments, understands the damage that's brought if he doesn't do it, because his clarity is fantastic. Let's discuss you and I. Again, we start with a hundred percent. You see, the brown part begins at birth. And it's fully, fully functioning from the day I open my eyes. I see 100% brown. The baby, the infant is pure instinct. The baby's hungry, it cries. The baby's wet, it cries. The baby has its needs and only its needs. It can know nothing but its own needs. As a person begins growing, hopefully the seichel begins fighting a little bit and becomes a little bit stronger. So maybe the 100% brown becomes 90%, maybe it gets to a point where it's 20, 80, and that's probably a good point to imagine a person's at. If we are 20% Seichel and 80% Behema, that's probably an accurate assessment. But what that means is I view the world with an 80% brown filter. An 80% brown filter is how I experience the world, how I live, how I think, that's how I am. And that makes it very difficult to see things. It makes it very difficult to daven. It makes it very difficult to appreciate a Shabbos. It makes it very difficult to see myself in another state because I view, I live, I exist in a brown world. And if you'd like a muscle to make this a little bit more clear, and when my kids were little, Sunday was Abba's Day. I would take the kids on different outings, museums and trips, etc., and I remember one time I took the kids to a museum and it happened to be that they were playing in the theater of Black Beauty. Black Beauty is a very nice story about this horse. And then this horse goes through various adventures and it has a nice theme to it. My kids were little, I took them to see it, and we're watching the movie. Now what happens is the hero of the movie is Black Beauty, this beautiful black horse. And at one night he's in the barn and someone sets fire to the barn. And the hay starts flaming, and smoke. And my six-year-old daughter is on my lap. She begins crying, trembling. She puts her head against my chest. I can't look, I can't look. She made me take her out of the theater. I had to take her out of that theater and wait in the lobby while the other kids watched it. Now, here's an interesting observation. If you ask the six-year-old girl, is that real? No. So why are you crying? Because it's scary. But, but it's not real. So why are you crying? To a child, make-believe and real are very close. An adult can watch something like that, can be engaged in it, can be involved, maybe even cry, all the while knowing that it's not real. If you'd like to understand the difference between us and a tzaddik, that's exactly it. <clears throat> Much like the child, to us we're 80% covered by desire. 80% of the filter that I view things it's 80% brown. It's so vivid. It's so real. It's hard for me to remember. I could be dominating Shemun Ezra, speaking to Hashem right there, and a different thought comes into my, my mind, and suddenly I'm gone. But why? Because I don't see things clearly. I could be walking down the street, and something happens. I'm scared. But, but what about Hashem? I don't see Hashem. I see Hashem through a very, very muddy filter. I see with eyes that are closed. If a person saw things clearly, as in the opposite, let's say they were 80% nevish, then that brown 
covering would be only 20% that filter. They would see with absolute clarity. Hashem is right here. They might still be scared when they're walking down the street, much like the adult going, watching that movie, recognizes it's fake, it's a mirage. They may emotionally feel it. Unless you're Moshe Rabbeinu, you're going to feel things. But it's very different because you see Hashem right there, and you know Hashem runs the world, and you're not scared to anywhere near the extent because your mind understands. You see, if you want to understand why the child cries in the movie, the child doesn't feel scared. The child perceives something, and because of that perception is scared. She perceives that this horse, the horse that she loves, is going to die. And because she perceives that as real, and because she perceives it as really happening, she's overwrought by those emotions. But you see, it's your perceptions that create the feelings. And once you have the feelings, well, guess what? I'm in big trouble. If a tzaddik is at the level where he sees through only a 20% filter, he's not confused. He's not fooled. It doesn't look scary. He knows it's a mirage. He knows it's a fake. He knows it's a bluff. And so it doesn't move him. And I believe that's really the answer to our situation. If you'd like to know how it is that I could give a shear in Hilchus Lashon Hara, and then myself speak Lashon Hara after I'm embarrassed to say it, and the answer is because I get it, maybe, maybe 20%. I view the world through 80% brown. And so I don't really see it as damaging. I don't see it as something that really changes me and changes the world. Shabbos is great, but I don't feel the Kedusha to that extent. It's vague, it's hazy. As you grow, the avoda is to make it more clear, to decrease that filter, to get it from 80% to 70 to 60 to 50 Eventually you get to a point where it's clear. It'll never be crystal clear. It'll still be hazy, but you see things with much greater clarity and much like an adult. You could be moved by what's going on. You could read a book and be involved in it, but you know it's a mirage, you know it's fake, and it doesn't rattle you. Hashem is here. Shem runs the world. And all of our Ruchmiya's growth surrounds this concept. Our avoda is in this area, and that's exactly what the growth of a person is in. But there's one more step that's very important. I often get calls about a fine bocher. It oftentimes sounds something like this. I don't understand it. He was the best guy in a shear, And he's got fantastic needles. And you got to see the way he dominates. And for some reason, I, I don't know why, he stopped learning, and he's depressed, and he's down, and he just doesn't have a geschmack anymore. I, 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 don't, I don't know why. And I've spoken to enough young men, and I've gone through this enough time to have a very good sense of the why. The why very often has to do with the fact that this young man was involved in something. Maybe he saw something that he shouldn't have seen. Maybe he thought something he shouldn't have thought. Maybe he did something he shouldn't have done. And then he's racked by guilt. And he's racked by guilt. How could I do that? I don't, how could I have done that? And the guilt destroys him. You see, the fact that he did an Avera, or he thought something he shouldn't, or looked at something he shouldn't, isn't the problem. The guilt is what kills him. And I'd like to ask the obvious question. What's the big deal? We all do Averas. I'm sorry to say it, I'm embarrassed to say it, but we all do Averas. Why is it? And that so many Bukram have such a problem, this is such a huge issue, and that the guilt is destructive. Now, would you like to understand the reason? Let's assume this fellow really is a fine fellow. A masmid, and he's learning, and he's dominating, and he's fine midos, 
And let's assume for a minute that he really has grown and he's a 75-25, meaning he got to the point where his Nebuchadnezzar Bami is just 75%. He's greater than you and I. And he really sees things with clarity. Here's the problem. He sees things with 75% muddy still. But it doesn't make sense to him why he could, how he could, and why he would ever do this. Because he still sees with 25% clarity and he realizes these things are things he shouldn't do. Why does he do it? And what he can't understand is how could he come to do it? How could he come to thoughts that he can't imagine, do things he never wanted to do, and he screamed at himself a hundred times or more, and I'm never, I'm never ever going to do it again, and yet he does it again. And to understand this, we have to understand another part of the Nevesha Bahami. Within that Nevesha Bahami, there are different traits, different midos. There's anger, there's jealousy, there's arrogance, there's laziness. But each mida is like a separate circle. Imagine that the Nevesha Bahami is a large brown circle, and whatever the filter shade is, depending if it might have started at 100 and maybe you worked and you got it down to, to 90, and you got it down to 80, got it down to 75, and whatever color it is, there are also small little traits, small little circles within that Nebuchadnezzar Bahami. Anger is one of them. Jealousy is another. Arrogance is another. Laziness is there. And here's an interesting thing that happened. They lay dormant until they're called upon. Until someone said that line that he shouldn't have said, and suddenly the anger wells up. And now what happens is it comes straight right into my vision. And now the filter of anger changes what I'm looking at. If I used to be looking at 80% mud, now I have a filter on top of that of anger. Anger could be anywhere from 0 to 100. And depending on how strong your anger is, it will determine how much it will affect things. So imagine you're a great tzaddik. You see things with absolute clarity. Meaning... 20% is the extent of the filter. I see things, again, not Moshe Benu, not the level of the others, but I see things with great clarity. I see the world to come. I see the actions that I do. Because my Nefesh Mami is only 20%. So I see my white circle, sees the, I see with great, great vision. But when I get angry, something happens. And the anger comes over my eyes, and suddenly whatever percentage that filter is, and now blocks my vision. If I have a little bit of a temper, it might be a 10% shade of red. If I have a stronger temper, it might be a 20% shade of red. It might be a 30, it might be a 40, it might be an 80. And even if you're very, very worked out, and even if normally you see things clearly with 20%, just 20% being blocked, but if suddenly in front of your eyes is a red filter and that blocks you, and now it's 60%, your vision is occluded, and no longer can you see but again, it's not just the way you look at things, it's the way you feel, and the way you experience, you're experiencing the world through a very dark and muddy vision. And I believe that's exactly what happened to many, many Bukhrim. They have a thing called taiva. And taiva, especially when a person's young, is very powerful. And it comes in front of their eyes, and it's a powerful screen. Imagine it's a screen that's 80% of itself, 90%, it blocks the vision, and suddenly that Bukhr feels vastly different than he did 10 minutes ago. And he looks at the world vastly differently, experiences things vastly differently, because the essence of him is now controlled, is now occupied by this 90% filter of taiva, 
and he does things that he would never do in his right mind until it leaves, and then he's back to his sober, normal sense. And what happens in plain languages, he becomes drunk, and you can become drunk with anger, you can become drunk with arrogance, you can become drunk with desire, and but whatever it is, it comes right in front of your eyes and becomes a part of you, you now view it, you feel it, you experience it, and suddenly you are in a vastly different place. And I believe that this is the answer to Miraglin. You'd like to understand how it's possible and that the Miraglin could sin this way? It sounds ridiculous. Why? Because at most they had a 10% covering. These were great men. So in their Nefesh Bahami, Nefesh Sikli balance, their Nefesh Sikli was 90%, Nefesh Bahami 10%. They saw with great clarity. They understood things with great understanding. How is it possible that they sin? The answer is they were in trouble. And when they were in trouble, there was fear. And fear is a very powerful force. You see, even if you perceive things mostly clearly, but those are giants. They are powerful, powerful men. And this is scary. And I don't see things with absolute clarity. I see things still hazy and fuzzy. And their minds spewed out various thoughts and various things as silly as it sounds, stronger than Hashem. And that was what drove them to rebel against Hashem. That's what led them to bring the Kleistral against Hashem. And it would sound utterly ridiculous if we don't see things like this on a regular, ongoing basis, day after day after day. And if you'd like to know what I mean, I'll make it very, very clear. I was driving my wife's car a while back, and I was on the highway, and I'm driving along nicely, and all of a sudden... I feel the car start slowing down very clearly and very quickly decelerating. And I said to myself, wow, what is that? And then I realized my wife's car has radar. And the radar picked up the fact that up ahead, the traffic had slowed. Before I saw it, the radar detected it. And the radar started slowing down the car, applied the brakes, started slowing down the car so that I don't get into an accident. Okay. Now, that was pretty impressive, because I said to myself, wow, self-driving cars are pretty close to happening. And you read about it. Google's got its version, Tesla has its version, and they're piloting these self-driving cars. And I said to myself, that's astonishing. Do you understand? We've gone from the horse and buggy to basically on the cusp of self-driving cars. It's phenomenal. It's an amazing world we live in. And the simple reality is we enjoy technological advancements and we enjoy benefits that couldn't be imagined a few, even a few years ago, and certainly not a few hundred years ago. However, I'd like to point out to you that it was a very, very slow, very, very incremental step-by-step change that happened over hundreds and hundreds of years. You see, going from the horse and buggy to the self-driving car, didn't just happen overnight. It took huge, huge armies of men. It took an entire scientific revolution. And then it took technology, which is the application of the scientific principles. And then it took an entire industrial arm to make that available to the public. But it was done in very, very tiny, small increments, millions and millions and millions and small improvements over hundreds of years. 
And let's do a very quick survey. And let's begin with the scientific revolution. Historians say somewhere in 1543, the scientific revolution began. Copernicus comes out with the theory that the sun is the center of our galaxy, the sun, or at least the center of our arrangement of planets, and the earth revolves around the sun. Okay, there, not long thereafter, in 1664, Newton defines gravity, gravity being the force that attracts more massive objects, pulls each, depending on its mass, creates a pulling force. In 1821, Michael Faraday discovers electricity. 1860, Louis Pasteur discovers the germ theory. Meaning until 1860, not that long ago, men did not know that germs caused disease. There were all kinds of thoughts of what make people ill, but pathogens were unknown. COVID-19 wasn't even a theory. It wasn't until 1860. Then along came penicillin in 1928, and DNA, quantum theory, theory of relativity, step by step. But I'd like to point out that we're talking over 500 years, over 500 years of an entire world's body studying, thinking, and each discipline built one on the other. And they say that mathematics is the language of physics. You can't really study physics unless you know math. But you see, you really can't understand chemistry unless you understand physics. You really can't understand biology if you don't understand chemistry. You really can't understand anatomy if you don't understand biology, and as well as chemistry, as well as... Meaning to say, each of the disciplines are interrelated, and each of the disciplines require one another, and it's only by gradual process... Step by step, a man discovers something, and one discipline shares it with the other, and then another man takes another. It took an army of people 500 years to reach the current scientific understanding. But science alone is valueless. It will have no application. Technology is the application of those principles to our real world. And that also took an army of men, hundreds of years, starting with the printing press, and then going on to astronomy, clocks, and then even things like the steam engine and basic motors, and then applying electricity in a useful manner. And when you begin going from one level to another, then semiconductors, eventually the light bulb, light bulb really before, but you see that alone is not enough. Because even if you have armies of people trying to figure out how to apply the science, you need a driving force. And the driving force was the Industrial Revolution and basically industry. People looking to make a living and people looking to bring things to the market. And it took an entire Industrial Revolution and to take those technological advancements, starting from a plow made of metal and then steel and beginning to apply it level after level. But here's the point. It took an entire army of men across three different areas, scientific, technological, and the industrial application of it, and it took them 500 years, and now we've arrived. So I have a question to ask. Which is more complex, the self-driving car or the horse and buggy? What kind of question is that? And self-driving car drives itself, and the horse is just, just, just the horse. Which is more complex, which one is more sophisticated, 
And if you ask a biologist, if you ask a scientist, they would tell you there's no comparison. Any living entity is infinitely more complex, infinitely more sophisticated than any machine man has ever invented. But even more than that, any cell in the human body is far more complex than any machine man has ever made. And if you'd like to see an illustration of it, let's just focus on the following. Self-driving cars are very impressive. There are 1.5 million species of animals. Every one of them is self-locomotive. They go on their own. They get where they need to be on their own. And they navigate. They figure out where to go, how to go. Within them is an instinct and nature. Within them is a brain, a supercomputer that teaches them what to do, how to do, when to do. And they're all self-navigating. But here's another interesting part. Could you imagine a man who invented a self-energizing telephone? Imagine a phone, a smartphone that was self-energizing. You buy it and it lasts forever. The man will be richer than any... I mean, come on. What, what I mean, every, every machine that we have requires a source of fuel. It might be fossil fuel, it might be electricity, it might be wind, but ultimately there needs to be an energy source. Yet every one of the 10 million existing living items under the sun are self-energizing. The plants, the animals, the coral, everything in existence is self-energizing. It either absorbs the sunlight or eats other things, but each of them is self-energizing. But if you'd like to see something even more interesting... When my son was about eight, I went to the pet shop to get mice, and in the, we saw there a cute little litter that had just been born. So I asked the fellow if it was okay if we take home that litter, and he said, sure. Now, the pet store only sells male mice. Somehow, there was a litter that was just born, and we took them home. Little did I realize that there were two male and one female amongst those three little mice. Well, an interesting thing happened about two months later. One of the mice started getting wider and wider, and then she gave birth. And then an interesting thing happened 21 days later. Those mice were pregnant and gave birth. You see, the gestation period of a mouse is 21 days. Before a few months were out, there were 100 mice in that cage, and I said to my son, we have got a problem. We have got to get rid of them. Here's the point. <clears throat> Could you imagine a man who invents a self-replicating car? You buy one car, and then the next day there are two in the driveway. And then there are four, and ten, twenty-four, a hundred. Could you imagine the wealth that man would have? There's not a single mechanism, not a single machinery that man has ever invented that's self-replicating. Yet every single animal in the wild kingdom is self-replicating. The zebras, the lions, the tigers, the bears, they all are self-replicating. Not, not only are they self-locomotive, not only are they self-energizing, and they're all self-replicating. Now here's the observation. It took an army of man, the entire Western civilization, and much of the planet, 500 years of advancement, of focus, across all different industries, scientific, technological, and industrial, and they come up with a machine, and it is impressive. 
but that machine is far less sophisticated and far less complex than any one of the 1.5 million animals, any of the 10 million species. And here's the question, where did it all come from? So ask a biologist today, ask a scientist today, where did it come from? It came from the Big Bang. Big Bang? It was a Big Bang. And from that Big Bang came 100 billion galaxies, 100 billion stars in each galaxy, as well as the animals, etc. Okay, do you think so? What do you think the odds of that happening is? But if that question doesn't bother you, study a plant, study an animal, study anything that's alive, and you see the incredible sophistication of it. And you study the fact that it took mankind 500 years, and they couldn't come close to inventing anything within miles and miles and miles of a simple amoeba. And if you really want to get into things and really want to understand things, you have to understand that proteins are the basis of almost all organisms. But proteins are made up of thousands of different atoms and incredibly complex arrangements. And if you ask a someone who studies this, and you ask them what are the odds of that happening, and typically the answer is very slim. The correct answer is about the same odds as a printing press breaking down, spilling the ink, and suddenly an entire 800-pound encyclopedia set comes into existence. And that is not my quote. That is a quote of a Princeton, Princeton professor. That is a quote of a person who understands how things function. And here's the point. How can a thinking, intelligent person, how could a rational thinking person say, this just happened, without intelligent design, without how is it possible? And the answer is, that, that is what Bechira allows a person to do. You see, no matter how clearly I see things, I view things with a very, very darkened filter. And if you're not growing and you're not accomplishing, and you're looking through a filter that's 80%, 90% in strength, maybe even more, and when you look out at the world, you're blind as a bat. And you're blind as a bat because you're looking at a filter that's 80%, 90%. And you see mud. You can't see an inch in front of your eyes. And you're going to come up with some pretty silly conclusions. I don't see God, therefore it doesn't exist. I don't recognize spirituality, therefore it doesn't exist. I don't believe in a soul. Who are you? Whatever. Who am I? Whatever. I don't believe in a soul. If I can't touch it, feel it, doesn't exist. And when you view the world through very, very darkened eyes, and when you view the world through a filter that covers up your vision and doesn't let you see, and that's in fact what you see. And if you'd like to understand how the Miraglin can be so foolish, and the answer is they saw a clarity, but fear is also a factor, and fear clouded their vision, and with that they couldn't see. And they reached this conclusion because when you're looking through physical eyes, seeing Hashem is very difficult. They saw physical giants, huge bodies, powerful men. And even though logically, of course, they understood that Hashem is more powerful even than them, but they experienced life through their fear, and they experienced the world through their filter, and what they felt was fear, racking fear, stronger than Hashem. And even though intellectually they may know it was foolish, that's what they felt physically. If you'd like to understand an evolutionist, if you'd like to understand a person who says he's an atheist, and that's exactly what you're understanding. I think what this Rashi is sharing with us is a profound concept. 
And that concept is that we view the world through whatever state we're in. If you're 80-20 and see with 20 clarity, you have to remember the midos come in. That means even if you worked, even if you're a great tzaddik, you still see things with great confusion because there's only 20% filter, but you're still viewing things in a haze. And surely once a midah comes into play, it might be anger, it might be jealousy, it might be desire, it blocks my vision even further, and suddenly I'm blind. And that explains exactly how it is that thinking human beings can do things that's so destructive, how we can sin, how we can space out during dominating, how we can not value learning. And I believe it also explains something very, very pivotal. You ever notice people say, what happened to my bitachan? I was such a bal bitachan, and then this happened, and I lost my job, and I lost my bitachan. I'd like to share with you, you may have lost your job, but you didn't lose your bitachan. You see, bitachan is not something that you talk about in the base medrash. If you'd like to understand bitachan, imagine the following. Imagine you and I go to a boxing match. And I say to you, oh, that guy, I could beat him. I would just throw a left jab. I would throw a hook. I'd throw a cross. And I'm assuming at a certain point you say, it's very impressive what you say you would do. Get in the ring and let's see it. And bitachan isn't learned in the base medrash. You learn the concepts in the base medrash, but you learn it in the real world. And it's not a test of bitachan until you're out there in the world. And that's when there's a test to see where you're really at. You don't lose your bitachan. It indicates where you are at. But you see, this is the point. You can say the words, you can think them, but until you're there, until you're filled with fear, until you have to meet a mortgage payment that you don't know how you're going to do it, and suddenly you're racked with that sense of fear, until you hit that moment, you don't realize what level you're at. And it's only then that you get to experience how you view the world, only then do you get to experience how fear affects you, and that's when you got to get to work, and that's when you get to change. What this Rashi is sharing with us is a fundamental concept. And that concept is we view the world through a filter of both Nefesh Bahami, Nefesh Sikli, and depending on what level you're on is going to determine the clarity. And the more you grow, the stronger Nefesh Sikli becomes, and that clarity begins forming. And you started out 80% filter brown, you worked and you worked, you learned and you dominated, and suddenly 70%, 60%, 50%. And if you really, really grow, you may see the view of the world through only a 20% haze. It's never totally real, never totally there, but it's only 20% haze. However, there's also other things that come into play. There's anger, there's jealousy, and you can't just work on the balance. You have to work on the individual traits, and if you work on all of them, and then you're able to see things perfectly clearly. The Miraglim's flaw was in an area, fear took over, and it covered their vision, at which point they reached the conclusion that sounds ridiculous, and it would be ridiculous if we wouldn't see it all the time on a regular basis with tremendous people of wisdom who say things that are so foolish. And I'd like to close with one last observation. And that observation is, what would have happened had they won the fight? You see, these people were great tzaddikim. And where they ended up was not quite there. Had they won the fight... They would have been, in history, some of the greatest human beings who ever existed. And Hashem says to them one thing. You became Rishayim. But listen to the words that Yeshua Kalev says to them. Ach b'ashem al timrodu. And don't rebel against Hashem. Vatem al timrodu. Then you won't fear. 
And Rashi explains, do you know why you feel fear? Because you forgot history. You forgot to look back on Yisias Mitzrayim. You forgot to look back on the fact that Hashem guided you through the Midbar. You forgot, you see, you forgot Kriya Shamsuf. If you would look back on those events, you would have a constant invigorating of your emuna, a constantly invigorating of your bitochen, and that would have given you the strength to fight. Even if you were scared, but had you reviewed and kept that ever in front of you, that would have won the war for you. And I believe what Rashi is sharing with us is a fundamental concept. You have to review your life again and again and again, because there will be situations where you're scared. There will be situations where you're in trouble. And you'll be in a situation where your betochen is challenged. And you're only going to see things with 20% clarity. And it looks very murky and it looks very scared. If you review and review how many times Hashem saved you and Hashem was there, and Hashem saved you again, you'll be able to win those battles. Why? Because I know the truth. I may not see it. It may not be clear to me, but I know it. Much like that child can know things. She may experience fear, but if she really works on it, and she can know that it's true anyway. Much like when I damage when I say, I may be blinded. I'm looking through an 80% mud and filled vision. But I know Hashem is present. If you work on the events of your life, you review them again and again and again, and they become clear, they carry you through. And you know, even though I can't see Hashem, I'm not a tzaddik, I'm not on that level, and I know Hashem saved me before now, and I know Hashem will save me again. And Hashem grant us wisdom and understanding to put this into practice.